0: I don't know how much of a blessing this conference has been to you, but it's been a blessing to me. And one of the reasons that it has been a blessing is the skill of the musician or the piano player or whatever. Should I call you the music minister? Yeah, he's a music minister, all right. He's a music minister, okay. And one of the things that uh, I i taking as a point of personal privilege is I want him to introduce to us a song that I met or encountered in Korea. One of my students came in and said, teacher, do you know this song? And I, I did not know the song, but it is one of the most profound Christian songs that I've ever heard. It's not widely known, Uh, It's available on the Internet. It's available on YouTube. You can get it and the lyrics if you like. But I'd like Brother uh, uh, Mark to sing for us in Christ alone. like it? Let's have an amen if you like it. Uh, that is one of the most theologically complete songs of the modern contemporary area, and uh, a lot of our modern hymnody is kind of frothy and skimming the surface, but that gets it all, death, burial, and resurrection. Welcome to the conference again. This is sermon number four and the Parade of the Ladies in John's Gospel, we're in John chapter 11. But let me start out by introducing it, and I hope I can get the introduction done faster than the brother did last night, uh, because he was at the end of his sermon when he finished his introduction. Amen? Okay, Um, I am on a personal crusade. I am on a personal vendetta. I have a hobby horse that I am about to ride, and I am a personal crusade to do something that has not been done before or not been done recently, and that is to restore the doctrine of the resurrection, to restore the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection doesn't mean much until you have heart surgery, and till you get to the end of your life, then the doctrine of the resurrection becomes a lot more important. I had a deacon in a Baptist church when I was still ministering in the Presbyterian circles come in and complain to me one day. He said, my, my pastor only has two sermons. And I said, really? What's that? He said, well, he says one sermon is on tithing and the other one is on resurrection. And he only uses resurrection on Easter Sunday morning get my drift and is not that true isn't that the truth that we only talk about resurrection on Easter Sunday morning and then we don't talk about the resurrection of the believer we talk about the resurrection of Christ and Christ alone. And the reason why that is true is because everybody is locked into the idea that God's purpose in our life is to have us die and go to heaven. If you asked most evangelists uh, and uh, evangelistic tracts present that option, do you want to go to heaven? And if you don't have an earthly kingdom, if you don't have Christ returning and establishing a royal rule, if you don't have Christ sharing his rulership with companions uh, who have been faithful in this life, the companions of the king, if you do not have that, then you don't need a resurrection of the believer. And I'm afraid that the majority of our churches have slipped off the edge here and they don't any longer. See the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of the individual believer, the judgment seat of Christ, and the resulting positions in the kingdom. The way someone asked me the other day, where where did you get into the kingdom message? And I said I came in the back door. And the way I'm talking about that is, or the reason I said that is because when I came out of seminary, I had all of the basics in mind, But I noticed one thing about the New Testament, and it talked an awful lot about rewards. And so I have a whole series of messages about rewards, in every place I've ever been, um, in churches and pastoring churches, I've talked about the doctrine of rewards. But the doctrine of rewards is fairly meaningless if you're in heaven. I mean, who are you going to rule over? And... I backed into it that way and I came out with the idea the understanding now that Jesus is coming back and he's going to establish his rulership over the heaven and the earth the double portion of the firstborn so having said that let's turn to John's gospel John chapter 11 which is a very very familiar chapter to everyone seated here and let me lead into the the passage this way. Much to our loss and our chagrin, John is obsessed with the resurrection. And the reason he is obsessed with the resurrection is because he has written the gospel to the synagogue system that were separated from the land of Israel. One of the things that we uh, that I get by hanging around with a Messianic rabbi is the fact that The New Testament has been de-Judified, as he calls it, uh, so that there's not the same amount of Jewish influence in it. They don't want, uh, people historically have not wanted to admit that we got something from the Jews, and that's basically an anti-Semitic position. Let me give you two cases, two examples. Do you realize that there is no book of James in the New Testament? And everybody thought there was. Well, what I'm saying is that in the Greek, the name is not James, it's Jacob or Yaakov. So, there happened to be a king of England who uh, authorized a translation and nod their head to the patron who was paying the bills. They decided to name one book King James, the book of James. And all that does is de it, it makes it... Uh, less Jewish in nature. We are inheritors of the sons of Abraham, and we are drafted into the olive tree, and therefore we should magnify and understand and have the Jewish backgrounds as we approach the focus of Scripture. Uh, they are not an ignorant people, although they rejected their leadership, at least. They rejected the Messiah when he came. But there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And therefore, we have fellowship and opportunities to learn from them. So, John is interested in the resurrection. That was the big stumbling block. The incarnation was the, uh, the stumbling block and the resurrection. And John's theology deals a lot with the pre-existent Christ. So as we go through the book, we see, first of all, the wedding feast. We talked about that in our first message. Then the wedding feast implies a resurrection, does it not? The wedding feast in the kingdom is going to have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting in it. And therefore, they're going to be in resurrection bodies, just like we are going to be in resurrection bodies. And we're going to sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Then in the second chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus utters the very first uh, statement. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. He's talking about the resurrection. In the next section, we have the story of Nicodemus where uh, Jesus says you need to be born from above, and that's talking about resurrection in accordance with Ezekiel chapter 36 And that's why it was an astonishment to Jesus that the chief theologian of Israel did not understand that the kingdom that is reestablished in the book of Ezekiel comes after the resurrection of the body. And a lot of people visualize Ezekiel chapter 36 as metaphorical and Zionist, but there is no more graphic picture in the Bible from cover to cover Then the vision of the dry bones, and they hear the word of the Lord, and they reassemble, and flesh comes on flesh again, and they're restored to life. That is God's picture of resurrection. Then, of course, we have the incident at the pool of Bethesda, where a man is lying by the pool for 38 years. Jesus comes along and raises him from his pallet, and he walks and joins with Jesus, and the latter part of that chapter is talking about uh, resurrection. The feast in John chapter 5 is unnamed. I think it's the Feast of Trumpets, which is the traditional feast that uh, the Jewish people view the resurrection from the dead to occur. So here we have another illustration in a sign parabolic form that uh, there's going to be a resurrection. Then we move on to the Jesus healing the man who was born blind. He was born without eyes. He was blind from birth. He had no life in his eyes. And Jesus spits on the ground and makes clay. Isn't that fun? Why did he do that? He was reenacting what he had done in the first place because man was made of clay. So Jesus was there in the Garden of Eden fashioning the man like on the the Hebrew suggests the wheel of a potter. He was forming and shaping. I used to, in my ignorance, used to think that uh, there was a pile of dust there and God breathed his spirit into the pile of dust and kind of formed it. And that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that the water and the clay were combined together and God formed man out of that. So we have a reenactment of creation, again a resurrection motif, and then we have uh, the shepherd and the sheep. There's two, there's two folds of sheep in John chapter uh, 10. Uh, The great shepherd of sheep, again he's alluding to Ezekiel, and he says this is the sheep and this this is the sheepfold. The sheepfold is a picture of the Messianic kingdom. And he says, I have other sheep to gather. He's going to recover the lost tribes of Israel and bring them into the fold as well. The ones who were scattered or dispersed abroad, he's going to bring them. So all through John's gospel, he is obsessed over and over again. And you can see glints and hints like I talked about last night where Nicodemus says, Uh, or the the Pharisees say to Nicodemus, search the scriptures because no prophet is to arise from Galilee, making a play on words of Jesus' resurrection. So uh, my point of view is that John is very, very much concerned with the resurrection. So now we come to the very familiar John chapter 11. And the sequence is sequence number 16 in the book. And the title, of course, is I am the resurrection of the life. Again, we have a chiastic structure in John chapter 11. And one of the things we can see when you make copies of these files is this in detail. In the introduction, Jesus receives a message from Mary and Martha. Uh, Jesus and the disciples talk about Lazarus and death. Lazarus is dead, verse 14. Martha, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Then, the turning point of the passage, the most important point of the chiasm, the place that the writer wants us to understand, is Jesus' I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. And Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she repeats the same verbiage that Martha had given it. Then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead Lazarus, come out. The conclusion, the various reactions of the Jews in 1145 through 54. Now let's look at it a little bit more in detail. Follow with me in, uh, in uh, your Bibles in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Lazarus is sick. Now a certain man, often used to introduce a story, Lazarus, Eliezer in Hebrew, God is my helper. There are two other men named Lazarus Eliezer in the scripture, one is in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and one is the servant of Abraham the servant of a- Abraham was clearly a gentile and as i suggested last year the uh, poor man named Lazarus the beggar at the, the gate of the rich man was also a gentile because he hung around with dogs and dogs was a term that was derogatory term used by the jews for the gentiles Mary and Martha, Martha and Mary, two sisters. Often in the Old Testament, the two cities of Samaria and Jerusalem were presented as two sisters, Ezekiel 23, verses 1 through 21. Son of man, there were two daughters of one mother, and their names were Ohola, the oldest, and Oholibah, her sister. Samaria is Ohola, and Jerusalem is Oholibah. Ohola means she who has a tent. This is likely a reference to the temple on Mount Gerizim. A holy bow means my tent is in her. This is a reference to the temple on Mount Zion. Okay, pardon me. I'm going to disrobe here in front of God and everybody because I'm warm. I always hated it when the preacher used to take off his coat because that meant the sermon was going to get long. Now the location is interesting. There are from Bethany, which literally means the house of unripe figs. This is the nation of Israel. See Jesus cursing the fig tree in Matthew 21 verses 18 through 19. And to keep in line with what Brother Roy said earlier, figs and fig leaves and fig fruit always mean works in the scripture. One of the things that happened in the Garden of Eden was there was a fig tree there that the uh, first couple used to clothe themselves when they realized that they had lost their glory that they had from the uh, uh, creator God, and they clothed themselves with fig leaves. So they were trying to get back in God's good graces by works, and works never work in the scripture. They had to have the sacrificial lamb, they had to have the blood of atonement to get back in fellowship with the Lord. Verse 2 is written by the author. It assumes that the readers have already been exposed to the story in Matthew's gospel in six seven. The message the sisters send to the Lord, the one whom you love is sick. In verse 4, Jesus explains the sickness of Lazarus. Literally, this sickness is not for the purpose of death. This is a purpose clause. This is because God has always had resurrection in mind. One of the principles that we need to understand and explore and remember is that whatever God creates, He also restores. Whatever He has in mind originally, He's going to reverse the tables and give us the purpose, the true purpose of the sickness, then is to glorify the Son of God because of it, that is the sickness. So sin, in some way, and death, the result of sin, glorifies God, makes God visible by allowing him or telling us or showing us that he is able to reverse the effects of the curse. Mary and Martha say in verse 3, the one whom you love philo, which is brotherly love, is sick, but the author in verse 5 says, now Jesus loved agapao, which is unconditional love, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The sisters think it is only brotherly love whereas the author thinks it is divine, unconditional love. And when Jesus hears the message, he, without explanation, stays where he was for two more days. In the preceding verse, the author told us that Jesus loved all the parties unconditionally, so his action was not motivated by lack of love. Here's the first question that people ask when they lose a loved one. Lord, why aren't you here? Lord, why, why don't you care? You're staying away. You're not intervening. You're not here to comfort me in my loss of grief. So, Jesus' absence is not lack of love. The Lord proposes that they go to Judea again. Hmm. A veiled hint that this passage is talking about the second coming. The disciples object, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? That's a rhetorical question. It has the equivalence of, you should not be going there again. So Jesus comes back with a proverbial statement. Are there not 12 hours in the day? And the implied answer is yes. This is the amount of time of life, amount of life or time allotted by God the Father. If anyone walks in the day, and if anyone walks in the light, if anyone walks in the revelation of God, he does not stumble. Notice that this verse makes sense at both the physical and the moral level. Stumble is equal or equated to unbelief in the person or revelation by, given by Jesus. But if you walk in the light, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, If you walk in his light, if you walk in his revelation, then you are not going to stumble in your walking during the light of the day. The reason why he does not physically stumble is because he sees the light of this world, which is the sun, or he sees the light of this world, which is Jesus. The reason why he does not morally stumble is because he sees the light of the world, the sun, S-O-N. But the opposite is also true. If any man walks in the night, he stumbles physically. If any man walks in the night, he stumbles spiritually. The reason he stumbles spiritually is because the light, capital L, Jesus is not in him. Therefore, he has no indwelling Holy Spirit. In John, John uses absolute categories of light and darkness, but they're not absolute in this sense. If a man is in the light, he can go off into darkness when Judas went out from the presence of the Lord, it says it was night. Now, the night was not just a condition of the atmosphere. The night was the moral influence that Satan was indeed having over the activity of Judas. So a man who is in the light can go into the darkness, and a man in the darkness can come to the light. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and later on in the text, he is one helping prepare the spices for the burial, the royal burial of Jesus. So these are impermeable categories. So a man in the light can move into darkness, a man in darkness can move into the light, according to John. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus calls Lazarus a friend. Philoi, which is a plural of philos, was a title to the royal friends, advisors of the king in ancient Macedonia. They were the personal choice of the king, and they might have come from anywhere in the Greek world. You and I are friends of the messianic king if we do what he commanded. So when you see friendship in the gospel or friend, it means someone who has a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a covenant relationship with him, and who also is, in many cases, being disloyal to that relationship. Friend is a title. It's not a uh, status like we use it. Then Jesus uses the ambiguous term sleep to refer to death. The disciples conclude that Lazarus is sleeping and will recover from his illness. The author tells us this plainly in verse 13. Finally, Jesus clarifies his statement by using the word death and not the euphemism sleep. He says, literally, Lazarus died. We're still in this section of John's gospel, verse uh, 7 through 16, where the disciples are misunderstanding. Jesus then tells his disciples that he was glad that they weren't there so that they might believe And I have inserted in parentheses there in the resurrection, which was about to happen. In verse 16, Thomas makes an ambiguous statement. Does he mean, let us go, that we may die with him, Lazarus, or Jesus? Compare Galatians 2.20, where disciples are considered to have been crucified with Christ. This may be why he was called the twin. The narrator speaks in verses 17 through 22. When Jesus came, again, a double meaning, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When this comment is combined with the two days in verse 6, we have a very interesting number since man was created on the sixth day. Are you with me on this? You have two days plus four days, so you have six days in the narrative. The Jewish rabbis and the early church fathers believed that one day equals a thousand years, and a thousand years equal one day, based on Second Peter 3 eight. So the six days mentioned here can also represent 6,000 years from Adam to the second coming of Christ. The narrator also tells us that Bethany was about 15 stadia away from Jerusalem. Verse 19 tells us that many Jews from Jerusalem had gathered with the women mourners who were there to comfort Mary and Martha. This would seem to indicate that the family was widely known in Jerusalem society. Interestingly, when Martha hears that the Lord is coming, she goes out to meet him outside the town. The Greek root root for the verb to meet is the same one Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, It talks about believers meeting the Lord in the air. Mary, without explanation, remains in the house. Martha begins the interview with the Lord that says if he had been there, but he wasn't, her brother would not have died. The truth is, as I suggested uh, last night, no one ever died in the presence of the Lord. Even the thief on the cross but then Martha, with a statement of faith, tells the Lord that whatever he asks of God, God will give it to him. First John three twenty two says, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. If you want to have power in prayer, then you keep his commandments and do whatever pleases the Lord. Continuing the interaction with Martha, the Lord answers her statement of faith with an unconditional promise, your brother will rise again. Martha answers with a statement about the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is the 13th principle of the Jewish faith, so you wonder all through the narrative in the New Testament why the disciples had so much problem believing in the resurrection. She knew that Lazarus would rise again in the resurrection at the last day, the day of judgment. The last day in the Gospel of John. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's how John uses the term the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. In the last day that great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried saying if any man thirst let him come unto me and drink Now we come to the meat of the matter Jesus was told by Martha who wanted to make a theological statement he said i know my brother will rise up in the last day and Jesus then reveals something that he had not revealed before we notice we have a fifth, the fifth I am statement here in John's gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. Every one of the statements is important, but Jesus explains more. Everyone who believes in me, even though he may physically die, he shall live again. Resurrection. To this group of believers, Jesus is the resurrection. But there's another possibility when Jesus comes back. Whoever is alive, it should be translated, is alive and believes in me, shall never die. Who may in the Greek? The reason is because he shall receive a new body without dying. This is described in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-one and 52 using the words, We shall not all sleep, physically die, but we shall all be changed. To these people, Jesus becomes the life. So let's back up a minute. Wherever you have a resurrection, you also have a rapture. So there's two possibilities for the believer, the one who believes in me. First of all, you're going to be alive when Christ comes back. And that, to that person, you're going to receive Jesus as the life giver, the one who gives you the new resurrection body, as Paul would say, to be clothed upon. We do not want to be unclothed. We want to be clothed upon. We want that heavenly body that's already hanging in the closet of heaven to come and uh, encompass us and wrap itself around us. And the other possibility is you might be in the grave and to that person, whoever he may be, uh, maybe me, maybe my wife, maybe any of you, that person has the power of the resurrection promise. Now Jesus asked Martha if she believes what he had just told her. She replies threefold. She has a threefold confession of faith. She said, I believe that Jesus was the Christ, which according to 442 means he is the savior of the world. It's a reference to his sacrificial death. But she also said that Jesus was the son of God, which means he is the future king of Israel. And according to John 149, which is a reference to his future reign. And then she says, Jesus was the one who was to come into the world, 331, which is a reference to his incarnation. So here in capsule form, we have all the bases covered. We have the past incarnation. We have the present sacrificial death. We have the future reign and coming again, all encapsulated in what Martha's confession of faith is. And John often does that in his statements. He often covers the past, present, and the future. Martha calls Mary secretly. The teacher has come and is calling for you. Mary arises, which is again a picture of resurrection, quickly, and came out of the village of Bethany, the symbol of Israel. Jesus had not yet entered the village. If the church meets the Lord in the air, then he does not enter Israel until he lands on the Mount of Olives. The Jewish people who are mourning follow Mary up when they see that she rose up quickly. Mary and the people who followed her fall down at the feet of Jesus and Mary says the same thing that Martha had said earlier. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I should pound in the pulpit because when you pound in the pulpit, that means you're not sure what you're about to say. I am thinking here that Lazarus Represents the righteous dead of Israel, Martha represents the present-day church, and Mary represents the 144,000 sons of Israel of the last days. But I'm not certain of that, and I think my integrity requires me to confess that to you. But I've been developing the theme this week that each of the characters that we're dealing with are representative characters, and that's why I suggested that. Jesus does two things when he sees Mary and the other Jews weeping, and I would suggest that is, these are legitimate uh, responses when you lose a loved one. First of all, he groans within himself. This is literally an expression of anger. It's equivalent to the snort of a horse when a horse stomps and snorts. Secondly, he weeps. The word here means he sheds tears. It's not the same word describing the mourners weeping, The Jews say, see how he loved him, but they use the word for brotherly love, again, not divine love. Brotherly love is not sufficient when describing God's love for us. Unconditional divine love is the only sufficient word for describing God's love for us. And God's love leads to the restoration of all things, as I said before. The response then is, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? This question expects the answer, yes. Jesus groans within himself a second time. The tomb was a cave. They go to the tomb. We are to think of the cave of Moses and Elijah. The stone is to seal the grave, but it also reminds us of the stone tablets of the law. The law brings death. It does not bring resurrection. Martha objects since he was already dead four days. If four days equal 4,000 years, then we are talking about the time from the fall of man to the time of Jesus. Death had reigned all that time. But Jesus challenges Martha, did I not say to you that if you would believe I am the resurrection and the life, that you would see the glory of God? Probably this refers to the glory of the resurrection. Glory has a dual meaning. In one case, it means praise. In other cases, it means the resurrection and the second coming. Jesus said in 11.4 that Lazarus' sickness was not designed to lead to death, but for the sake of the glory of God. Jesus prays in 17.24 that he wants all believers to behold his glory. Jesus prays out loud for the sake of the people surrounding him at the cave or the tomb. Verse 43, Jesus shouts with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And someone has wisely observed that he called him by name or all the people in the cemetery would have emptied out. First Thessalonians four sixteen: the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Jesus shouts with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God on the feast of trumpets, no doubt. Jesus comes forth still, but Lazarus comes forth still bound in grave clothes so he couldn't walk. Lazarus comes forth with his face wrapped in a cloth, the same word as the veil of Moses, so he couldn't see. He couldn't walk and he couldn't see. The command of Jesus to those surrounding him is to loose him from the things that bind him. He now has resurrection power available to allow him to see and to walk. He is no longer bound by the law of sin and death. The reaction, first reaction, belief, second reaction, unbelief. The chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees gathered a council. They held a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What shall we do? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. We should not hold the Jewish people so accountable to believe that he was not crucified except by a minority of leadership who were in danger of their losing their position. The logical question then would be, what will happen if everyone believes in him? The answer is interesting. The Romans who ruled Israel at that time will come with armies and take away our place, the temple, and the nation, scatter into activity. That's what the high priest said. This is ironic. They kill him to prevent this from happening in 40 years to a day. It happens. So the high priest being the high priest that year, he was under the influence of the prophetic spirit. Caiaphas, the high priest that year they rotated the priesthood, tells them that they know nothing at all. Ironically, this is true because they don't believe in Jesus. Then he says, "It is expedient that one man die in place of the people so that the nation doesn't perish." This is the classic statement of the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is honored, uttered by an unbeliever. Very ironic. To make sure we understand the irony, John tells us that he did not originate that thought but speaking under the control of the Holy Spirit who spoke through the office of the high priest. The prophecy meant two things. First, Jesus would die for the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and secondly, also for the nation of Israel, northern kingdom, who had been scattered abroad. And that's the end of the story. So, Why do we need the resurrection? Because God is coming back, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to finally give us good government that we don't have to have an election every so often. And he's going to share in that rule. But everything revolves about the centrality of the, the resurrection. I was in Korea ministering for about three and a half years and I encountered uh, other religions there, Buddhism, Catholicism, Shamanism, and every, every religion that I encountered had a heaven for people to go to. And one of my clients, who was a psychiatrist, a medical doctor who I was teaching English or practicing English with, said to me one time looked me dead in the eye and said why do you christians practice shamanism and i said what do you mean he said well every year at this time the mothers christian mothers gather in church and pray that their kids will get into the best schools and have the the highest degrees and results on their their uh, test scores and so that they can have high status and get good jobs and get good positions. He said that's just pure shamanism. And that got me thinking. I said what is there so unique about Christianity that all other religions have nothing to say about and that is simply this. Not that we're going to heaven everybody's going to heaven according to world religions but that we're going to come back we're going to be resurrected from the dead not reincarnated we're going to be resurrected and we're going to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the law will go forth from Zion and there will be peace and harmony all through the world. Psalm chapter 2 is a very interesting psalm. God, The Father says to God the Son, Ask me, just ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth as your possession." So the inheritance of the Messianic King is not just the land of Israel, it's a worldwide empire. From the history of man and uh, almost from the Tower of Babylon, every civilization that has arisen uh, uh, in uh, history, the Chinese, the Mongols, every civilization in history has had this urge to empire, this urge to empire. When we get prosperous, when we get successful, when we get militarized, then we got to go conquer the world. That's what we've got to do. We've got to rule over people. The urge to dominion that has been perverted by sin. But God has a different alternative. His, his, his idea is that, yes, we will have a, uh, an empire. Yes, we will have a worldwide dominion but it will be done with people who have been proven in the fiery furnace of testing, people who have been willing to live by faith in spite of the whole world going in the opposite direction. And that is our hope, and that is our promise. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the promise of the resurrection. It's a precious uh, gift and promise to us who are getting old in life, and we look forward to that time when the trumpet will blow. And the dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and evermore be with the Lord. We pray those things now in Jesus' name. Amen.